0: good morning oh wait good afternoon (laughs) where am i it's like a it's like a quick draw
1: yeah for who gets to the mic first first, and i'm always stumbling
0: well i picked it up first but then misfired (laughs) that's true it's a good morning morning. so uh (laughs) no points for me
1: good four o'clock to all of you out there welcome to bible study dave this is the last bible study This is the last bible study
0: Yes, we finished a book, another book.
1: We did it. Yes. We did Exodus, and then we did the entire Gospel of Mark. How wow. does it feel?
0: It feels really good. It's been uh, very educational for me to sit down with a pastor and seminary graduate to to learn uh, about the Bible. As Is that well what's as, happening here? Yeah. <laughs> uh, th- this has been <laughs> my private education. I go home and <laughs> prepare book reports on chapters by reading uh well i've uh,
1: learned from uh english teacher
0: oh thank you You and scholar who knows what i'm throwing out there (laughs) i have to check with my dad who watches these i'm like am i saying anything at all that makes sense he's like no yeah you're good doing great (laughs) no you're definitely the most popular (laughs) you're like yeah
1: from everyone i talk to they're like yeah dave sounds really smart ah there you go
0: (laughs) sounding smart has been the key to my success for a while
1: that's right. You have the teaching gift, Dave. You don't throw don't out lots of, it.
0: Lots, of, lots of words, seeing what sticks.
1: Well, enough about us, huh? Mm-hmm. Let's go to Mark chapter 16. Maybe one of the more interesting chapters in all of Scripture. One of the high, most contested and theorized chapters. So we're going to end on a good one here today, I think. And I'm interested to know what your theory is as to how this all came about. Um, But for those of you who should be looped in, Mark chapter 16 in your Bibles is either verses 1 to 8 or 1 to 20 and in most bibles in my study bible here it says the most reliable early manuscripts and other ancient witnesses do not have mark sixteen nine 9 through 20 in the original documents here so that means that we can have two conversations one about the one through eight and what we think is going on there as the possible ending to the story. We can also think like the wonderful Witherington, Ben Witherington concluded that perhaps the original ending was lost and that we don't have it and we can talk about why that is. Or we could just roll with it and go with the whole thing here um, all the way to verse 20. If you remember, Pastor Mark preached on this disputed ending, and it filled Pastor my-
0: Mark did? Do you remember this? No. When okay. That was very, it was several years plus ago.
1: So one of the things you need to know about Dave and I is that we spend a lot of time talking about snake handling churches, because it's a mutual interest of ours. I've read a couple books... If you've ever read Salvation on Sand Mountain, it's it's a great book. That's about, the
0: that's the masterpiece on, on yeah, snake handling. About yes.
1: snake handling churches. And so, you know, as as strange people like us do, we've made a lot of jokes about snake handling over the years.
0: I'm we're always seeing when Peter's gonna bring it to St. Andrews. <laughs>
1: And all of that comes out of this disputed ending, um, and which we'll get to. But Pastor Mark once preached on this disputed ending. And we're not going to give Pastor Mark too much grief about it, because there's also another disputed part of the New Testament. If you were here, people, I would quiz you on what it is. Do you know what it
0: is? What's another disputed part of the New yeah. Testament?
1: Yeah, it's just like this, where it's like, it's added.
0: Is it in the book of John? Yes. Is it the, does it have to do with the stoning? Of, yes. Yeah, yes.
1: So there, there's a... And you've preached on that. And I have. Yeah. Yeah, and most people preach on that one. You want to know why? Why? Because... It's a really good story. <laughs> this one is pretty good, but there's also some really strange stuff in it, and including the snake handling element and the poison element. And so it's more popular to um, engage with it in a different way, which just tells you a lot about, ultimately, how humans make their choices. And so we're not going to give Mark too much of a hard time for preaching on it. Although I was like, all right, so am I sitting through a sermon right now that is rooted in something I don't believe is in the Bible? Interesting question.
0: What do you mean it's not in the Bible, though? Well, it's in that's the... A, that's another thing, It's in the Bible. Because here it is. So what we have to, Bible? well, we have to, you know, we start talking about, you know, when... The Holy Spirit kind of gives the, this is how I picture like the editing room of God where the Holy Spirit goes, yeah, that one's good, Uh, and kind of stamps off his stamp of approval for which books, because there were some ones they were tossing around when they were compiling this. The council? Yeah, it didn't come uh, fully formed, and some got got nixed while others got uh, inserted, and it wasn't an arbitrary affair, but it was, uh, you know... I would say general belief is that, you know, the Holy Spirit had his hand in helping compile through, through those choices what goes in here. Uh, and uh, eventually, at some point, I don't know the history of it, this ended up in here. So, and it seems like it's here to stay because even though uh, it's contested, it's in like every Bible Mm-hmm. So it's 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 a scrappy little section that's fighting here to stay. <laughs> so I say it's in the Bible, and there's a lot of stuff that's in the Bible that you can get into a rigmarole about.
1: Yeah, true. And I think when it comes to these ones, one of the reasons why it is italicized the way that it is is to kind of give each person a little license. To become a theologian and decide for themselves if well, they want to keep it this
0: is kind of what I write about. Are we jumping ahead of ourselves? Do no we no want no to talk it's about it's just the most fun thing I know do ahead. we want to give some uh, service to the resurrection account here before we jump into the well the reason on-
1: I bring it up, Dave is yeah. because based off of how you answer that question, it will affect how you interpret verse one through eight in my opinion because The way that this was taught to me in seminary is more like a dramatic conclusion that is a cliffhanger. So you know how your Netflix queue, basically my wife is, not to throw under the bus, but if you, you know when you're watching Netflix, and of course they always end on an open question so that you need to watch the next episode to get an answer to that question my wife will stay up late into the night because she cannot live with whatever the open question is. And if the answer is just another 15 minutes in, then that's how they just keep you going and going. I think that this form of the story is more of a cliffhanger. And it's an intentional cliffhanger. And I think it's consistent with a lot of what Mark is doing within the story. Now, as we've been reading Mark, we've been noticing he is matter of fact, he has no problem leaving messages of the actual human responses to divine encounters. And he's not trying to clean up the whole story. He's trying to give us what we need to know and then keep it moving. And I think that's pretty consistent here in the verse one through eight. He gives us what we need to know about the gospel story and then he keeps it moving. And that's not to say that he um, is thinking that we need everything we need to know, but he has accomplished what he set out to do to preach the gospel in a concise manner. And then of course we see the other gospel storytellers, particularly Matthew thinks, well, let's add some more things here. But Mark is okay with just hitting us with the most important things and then moving on. And he's using some, as we've talked about, some pretty precise techniques literarily in order to do what he thinks he needs to do to make his points and to keep it moving. So we see that in the, in the first 1 through 8. That feels like 1 through 8 feels like mark. The next section does not feel like mark um and then also we could say he maybe got lost the ending, which is also I I'm cool with that interpretation. That's about
0: that almost seems more likely to me just because when we look at the amount of detail that goes on into certain parts, like if you just look at the soldiers mocking Jesus and the crucifixion, there's a lot of vivid visceral detail and action going on. For Mark to have known what happened when Jesus appeared to the disciples and just chosen to omit it, Seems strange to me. I mean, I don't know what's going on at the end. I buy any of it because you know I, I'm not gonna know but it all it always seems strange to me that uh, a Person that would write with so much detail would l- omit the detail of what really seems to it to be heading towards this whole time this revelation of of uh, the inbreaking of the kingdom through the resurrection. And we get it, we get the resurrection, but barely, we get it secondhand, hand uh, right. uh, delivered to, uh, you know, uh, uh, these women, and it's kind of...
1: And they the big argument, I think, for the it's missing is made out of the fact that it ends the way that it does, where they yeah. were afraid, they kept it to themselves, because that was obviously a problem, not just for us when we read it, but for the early church, because that's why this additional text was put in there.
0: Well, especially since, uh, like if this was published, published, the book of Mark, you know, within a week of the crucifixion or something, it, or even the resurrection, it seems like maybe in that time, but it wasn't. So he would have known... What would have happened? Uh, So it seems, to some degree, so it seems strange that that would be left out. Uh, That doesn't mean that what we get is his original ending, because uh, it seems like all the scholars don't think that, or the majority don't. But uh, okay, well you make your choice, but I
1: what I'm saying is my choice, and this is important because I'm going to go into interpreting it versus how I've made my choice here. Okay, is that it ends at eight and it ends intentionally. That's my choice. But I get why it may not, like Witherington doesn't yes, agree with no, others. Yeah. One of the reasons why I think that is that it, it reads very beautifully, although maybe it feels a little startling how how you read it, especially I think it's very artistic if you like this would be a very literary move to make um, and pack a lot of punch if you just rolled credits at verse eight. One of the coolest parts I think of all the resurrection accounts, and Mark definitely makes this known, is the women that are present there mm-hmm. at the tomb. So there, that's always a fun point of conversation. Why is it that you know the historical church has downplayed this role of women so much. When we see right here clearly that the only thing that turns the page from 15 to 16 is the are these women. And I was thinking over the even after I preach, I was thinking about this. I was like, why? Why were they there? Um, and obviously. Um, one of the major figures that factors in here is Mary Magdalene. And the historical church, I was talking to my dad about this a little, the historical church really conflated and downplayed Mary Magdalene. And made her, they, they basically called her a prostitute when she wasn't. And part of that, I think, is because we see a really empowered woman here And we see a woman who is the first evangelist and was one of the only people, one of a few women, right, and people, because John was there too at the cross, at least in other gospel stories we learn that, that stuck it through with Jesus even after he had died. So for the men, the male disciples, there might have been multiple factors. One is that if they were with Jesus, they might have also, too, been put on a cross or arrested or gotten into trouble, so that would have incentivized them to leave. But also, possibly just embarrassment over the, back, over the fact that they were associated with this leader who is now failing. And so it took a special disciple in order to stay, so we see Mary, the mother of Jesus, we see um, John, the beloved, who's there at the cross, and then Mary Magdalene. And I was thinking about that, you know, uh, a couple days ago, and I was wondering, too, if, you know, even for Mary Magdalene, if what Jesus had already done before he resurrected was enough for her, Because he had still cast out seven demons from her and had radically transformed her life. And so all of the, you know, as on the other side of the resurrection, sometimes we think this is not really important, but for those people, that was really important that he changed their life. Um, and, And so she was honoring Jesus even in his death, I think, because he was the one who brought that transformation into her life. And so there she is at the tomb. And this is like a special thing that she's doing for Jesus. It was not necessarily customary, but she was there to to care for his dead body. And then when she showed up, her expectations were completely um, obliterated. And there she was and looking at an empty tomb early in the morning and then there's an angel who speaks to her and the other two women and tells that jesus is risen and not only that but he's gone ahead of them into galilee and then there's a calling for peter um says they laid him but Go and tell his disciples and Peter he is going ahead of them into Galilee. So the other thing that I think is beautiful if you keep the ending the way that it is, if it's just a roll credits, is that the last time we saw Peter in Mark's gospel, and remember we've got to take all the other gospels out of our head for a sec, is that last time we saw Peter in the story, he was betraying Peter. Jesus and denying him three times. And so it's like this little window into where everything is headed. And so if you have just this nudge like, Peter denied everyone, but now go get Peter. This thing is, everything has changed and Jesus is ahead of you, roll credits. It just kind of gives a way for you to enter into the story and to say, oh, what came after that? Kind of like that cliffhanger on the Netflix queue. And to me, maybe that's what it what does is forces everyone to have a conversation about the resurrection and what it means for their lives. Versus when we fill in more details, which are obviously valuable, then it's more like, oh, well, then what happened is filled in for you. So maybe you don't have the, the intrigue to, to ask the question, well, what happened there? Um, so anyways, that, that's kind of some of my interpretation of verses one through eight. Thoughts?
0: Well, on, on this first section at least, yeah, I mean, I, I think for me too, the, the women were kind of the stars of the show here. And it made me think about, uh, maybe another comparison to somebody like uh, Joseph of Arimathea uh, who and even the disciples themselves, well why were these women able to always be present throughout all of this now part of it can be just dedication uh, that that was the, the the nature of their devotion to Jesus I think that's there no matter what but also, You know, sometimes people in marginalized parts of society, which women were and in ways continue to be, can slip under the radar because they're not viewed as as threats in any way. Uh, So uh, somebody like these women were able to kind of, without fear, whereas whereas Peter denies Jesus in in large part out of fear for his own safety or getting uh, arrested himself, There's there's no nobody's looking for these women. They're 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 invisible to this type of culture. And because of that, they've been able to fly under the radar of the culture and be everywhere, but still be at the forefront when it comes to Jesus. And so, you know, it it just reminds me of the Beatitudes of blessed are are the meek. You know, blessed are these people that are not big. In the way of the kingdom of earth, but are instead, you know, first in the kingdom of heaven, and through their their marginalization by a society, but their devotion to Jesus, that this is the first becoming last, the last becoming first. These women who have, uh, and even even the in the disputed part, the disciples don't even believe them or don't believe Mary Magdalene. Uh, When she goes to tell them, and I know that's disputed, so it's hard for us to put it as far as, like, well, as far as, like, uh, you know, what actually happened and when, but, uh, you know, you would think, we have corroboration from other uh, Gospels that there was doubt amongst the disciples, when you would think, after everything Jesus said, they'd be waiting going, "Is is there any news of him resurrecting? he's coming back right you know but instead they're like it's over and then people are like he's back they're like don't talk to me uh so uh but anyway these women there's just something i think to be said of of this is kind of like losing everything of the world in order to you know have your whole soul united to jesus and these women seem to be pictures of that to me
1: yeah i think there's something important to conceptualize about the resurrection, too. You made me think about, you know, I don't know if you ever heard of the C.S. Lewis idea around Jesus of um, liar, lunatic, yeah. or Lord. And I think that that's also, you know, you were making me think, like, about how they probably just at some point got cynical about what Jesus was had said and just thought, well, you know, he's just another lunatic out there, messianic figure who, yeah, said a lot of th- radical things, but then he's gone now, so can we even trust in these things, you know? And who knows wh- who heard what, also that,
0: but... Yeah. yeah, and it also illuminates what, you know, I've had throughout my life a changing definition of the the idea of faith. Uh, at times, faith has meant like a... a uh, a rightness or correctness in belief uh, or a, a, a complete surety, uh, however, what we see in the women who worry when they're coming up that uh, who's gonna roll the the stone away, uh, is that the, uh, no that's in the the real part, uh, so yeah, who, who will roll the stone away? And then even Joseph of Arimathea, who doesn't show any belief that anyone's getting resurrected here, but their faithfulness, that they, that their faithfulness to follow Jesus no matter where He goes, uh, and to believe in the goodness that is Jesus, no matter what if they don't fully understand. Uh, what's really happening, what's really going on. I mean, I think that's what faithfulness is. I mean, we have sometimes the uh, analogy of, of marriage, you know, the bride of the church, but of, of being of fidelity within a marriage, of just being no matter what, you know, I'm faithful to this person. So we see that happening here. And of course, they get the, the, the fruits of it. Number one with uh, the women witnessing this at the end. And Joseph of Arimathea, maybe kind of redeeming his whole role in all of this. So that's another thing that makes me yeah, think like of.
1: faith in the context of fidelity or something. Yeah, in faithfulness yeah. to something, yeah, as right. opposed
0: to it being about uh, proper belief and making it something that's more of almost an intellectual work.
1: Yeah, and I, I think that that's that's a very helpful an important transition to make, from rightness, which I think is, you know, I think Paul talks a lot about kind of like the spirit of the law, you know, and then being postured as part of a learning community um, that, you know, holds to truth, but holds them in a way where it's ever lear- you're always learning deeper, and more meaningful truths. Um, and you're not weaponizing those truths against people um, so much as you are walking in faithfulness to them and trying to transform yourself to them, um, first and foremost, before you're trying to change anybody else. (laughs) Um, And I think the resurrection has that um, invitation to it, kind of saying, well, this is a very supernatural idea This is an idea that is hard for the world to understand in any real way and would probably, um, people from outside the church would accuse you of being crazy for believing, but then people within the church who, you know, if you ever say, well, that's kind of a hard thing to understand or believe at times, might say, well, you're a bad Christian. And so I think that there's a, a way to hold something like the resurrection story in the fidelity that you're saying, or even in the way that the women are introduced to the resurrection, which is to be completely startled by it um, and to have a healthy fear in relation to somebody rising from the dead in a much more real, if you really think about what that would mean, if you witnessed it, you would also be terrified of that news and, and to let that do its work and to not try and um, kind of soften the blow of that. And that's what I like about the way that this ends. Because there's no softening of the blow and I don't think Mark is in the habit of doing that. I think he's okay with just punching you in the gut and letting you figure that out. So that's at least what I like about that way of understanding. And maybe there was more to it than that, and I think that's possible. But we don't have it, so we just gotta kinda go with what we got. Um, And then, of course, the other fun thing here is that the disputed ending is really um, got some delicious (laughs) morsels within it. (laughs) So, I know that you were gonna talk a little bit and your dad, too, a, a little bit about it.
0: Yeah, so, it's it's interesting. I feel like I go almost in a, uh, a backward movement from where you were going, not in a contradictory movement, but as opposed to, you know, kind of looking at the decision on uh, the disputed nature of this to understand the first part I kind of read it as our understanding of the book of Mark's trajectory so far to give us discernment on what to do with this disputed ending. Not regarding its authenticity as far as whether or not Mark wrote this. Everybody I read doesn't think that Mark wrote this. So but what do we do with it? Do we find value? in? and i think that one of the key goals i had entering into reading uh, a gospel and a story of jesus is to look and see by what jesus does and what he expects to kind of learn what number one the way he works and to get a better understanding of god but also kind of like by example learning the ethics of the kingdom, to a certain degree, and gaining discernment or the ability to discern the world through the lens of the ethics of the kingdom. What does Jesus value? Now, when I look at the world, what should I value? What comes into uh, friction against the ethics of the kingdom, and what seems to uh, come into alignment with it? And I've seen—I think we've seen—so many of these different people interacting with them. Some of them some of them in alignment with the ethics of the movement of the kingdom, whether they knew it or not, because there's many of these people that are blind on the side of the road, but they can see the king kingdom moving, and they, they jump in, and Jesus finds them there. But there's others that, that the river of the movement of the kingdom hits them like an, like a, you know, An island and it just will not move and we see that with the Pharisees it just hits them and they're immovable about it and they miss it Uh, so what I was when I was looking at this I was thinking knowing what we know does this go into regardless of if it's authentic is what it's teaching go come into alignment with the kingdom and uh, to me it does Uh, It is telling us stuff that I don't see as contradictory to the Bible. Was this put in by later believers to soften it? Or or for whatever reason to give more info, they thought it wasn't, that it was cut off too short, Uh, possibly. Do I have a problem with that? Not really. Uh, Because when I look at it, I go, does this seem to be in alignment with what we've seen going on? So when we get to things like snake, hand, like, you know, surf, and it doesn't say snake handling as far <laughs> as like a practice, although that's where that comes from. Is, is, right, is, but it's know, literally Usually these churches would be called the Church of Jesus Christ and the Signs Following. That ten, That uh-huh. is often a title for them because that's their main thing, is right. that in their services they'll handle serpents, they'll drink poison. Not the most popular
1: denomination. Oh,
0: it's, it's, it's a... Uh, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's a bit uh, esoteric, but they are fascinating. And if you do read Salvation on Sand Mountain, they are sympathetic because when you're, uh, reading it, you're going, they they want, they want to be right with God. So that if they pick up that, uh, that serpent that they're all right. In fact, I'll read you, uh, I'll come back to my main point. My dad talks about how, uh, Oh, I have to look on my phone because I printed out the wrong thing. My dad talks about how John Wimber, the, one of the founders of the vineyard, uh, went traveling, quote, tra- traveling uh, as a, a church growth consultant, and he attended a Pentecostal church that was into snake handling. Upon return, John Wimber said, well, you better have the anointing if you try that. <laughs> so in a way, it wasn't a full, like, they're crazy. He's like, they better be right. Uh, but is it true that when you are doing the work of the kingdom, the miraculous happens? Sure. Yes. Do I see a problem then that, do I see it impossible that someone could handle a poisonous snake and be okay? Of course, the miraculous can happen. Can they uh, drive out demons? Yes, of course. In fact, all this stuff except for the, the drinking of the poison happens in the book of Acts. It all happens, but you start with the kingdom and see what it produces. You don't start with handling snakes as the path to the kingdom. Uh, That's getting into that wrong way of thinking of trying to find the rules to follow uh, and and read that. So in a ways I I see these different approaches even to snake handling as different approaches to what you do with this disputed text. Do we turn it into dogma or do we or do we look at it saying, this seems to be in alignment with the kingdom, and because of that, there's some use to it. Uh, although, of course, you have to be careful knowing that there's something disputed yeah. going on. With
1: and him. I mean, I don't want to get too much into it, but I think also part of what happened there was that um, there was a real elevation of the King James Bible and the King James Bible was written for, you know, in in the vernacular of, uh, you know, proper English at that time. And I know you have your King James Bible, which you love. I do.
0: Well, it's very. It's, it was it sounds also wonderful,
1: yeah. um, compiled in a way that didn't have a lot of the source material sure. that our Bibles do now. And it wouldn't have had a... Uh, demarcation demarcation like the one that we have in our Bible and so the elevation of that translation and the lack of the demarcation there would have led people to have to interpret this in a way that now we can kind of come to it and say well actually maybe there's more to be (laughs) talked about here Um, so we can give kind of some sympathy to how it got to where it did
0: out of that. Do you think there's anything objectionable in the disputed text?
1: Um, I think, like you said, like um, some of these things actually probably ended up in there because they happened in the early church, and so they took those things and put them back. That yeah. would be my guess. Um, I think the way that you interpret drinking deadly poison is always an uh, interesting one, <laughs> um, and the snake-handling piece. I think you know understanding to me, one of the other things is like even the snake handling stuff and the poison drinking stuff is like, okay, we, we are so tempted to want to recreate exactly whatever the Bible says and make it a formula and just say, well, that's what we're doing now. Let's make our church based off of that.
0: Well, that, and the word you, you know. use is the big word is the formula. Right. If we try to find the, fo- they've all found the, the Pharisees have found the formula, everyone's found the right. formula. This is not trying to show you the formula, right? Right. So anyway, sorry, but go ahead.
1: No, yeah. So that's that's basically what I would say is that um, I don't think anything is uh, really egregious here. I think there are some scholars who would say this is more of a, uh, you know, they try and always make the case that. It's more about um, talking about defeating death and using these kind of lethal images as a way to say that death has been conquered. And so it's more of a, you know, just a literary device than like a literal um, interpretation that we should constantly be drinking poison and staying alive. Um, And also, because it because it's so dramatic and it captures your imagination, I think that there's been a lot of people that come in and kind of really move people away from it because it gets so emphasized unhealthily and and so it's kind of fun, but it's also a little bit dangerous um if if you go down that road too far
0: yeah gosh. In, in my opinion I mean well, it seems to me really uh, maybe it's just me it seems, it seems a, a fairly strange application of that text to start making that a practice. Right. As opposed to, like, if you read The Last Supper and he says, do this in rem- memory of me, I'm not reading an imperative of handle snakes to show your faith. Uh, it, it just seems to me like it's saying, like, you will be, whenever I read it when growing up, it was, you know, they will be protected uh in this way right. of course of course what brings that up is it does if you do believe that to a certain degree you would think that you get some sense of superhuman protection from just being a christian uh, mm. which could cause disappointment in the experience of people when that when god has different uh And like views. you like
1: you said I mean I don't think that's beyond the realm of no. the miraculous which I think did happen for paul and so we don't want to move too far away from it, I think we just want to make sure that it's couched in the understanding that, you know, yeah, I think that's true. Like, that doesn't mean go get a bunch of poison and start drinking it. I don't think that's the point, (laughs) because you'll never die. The point is, maybe if you're exposed to something like that, God could protect you.
0: Yeah, and it's interesting. I'll I'll read this from my dad, too, because, you know, the other thing, too, is it, it starts to come down to You know, how much are we afraid of allowing the possibility of the supernatural even today, right? And my dad dad wrote this, so this kind of goes towards He says, I remember when I was a young Christian embracing uh, a very conservative, dispensational position, thinking these supernatural gifts and activities were not for today. I felt that certainly this section must be spurious. However, when I became involved in the moving of the spirit in what was called, quote, the third wave, I saw and experienced many of these activities, save the snakes and sipping poison. But the, the driving out of demons uh, and, uh, you know, miraculous healing and stuff like that. So sometimes it comes down to an uncomfortability with uh, the, the, the gifts of the spirit moving today. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so my dad says he likes it to a certain degree because it's, uh, you know, at least kind of, uh, you, you know, uh, gets his, his juices flowing when it comes to the, <laughs> the movement of, of the spirit in those oh, ways. That's cool. I like it.
1: Yeah. And that, that's definitely something a Presbyterian would be a little more uncomfortable with. Yeah, sorry, I'm bringing some of my, uh,
0: my background. But I don't uh,
1: think that that's, I think that's healthy and good. I think we should be confronted with the reality of the miraculous in our Bibles and that that, that should do its work on us. And we should be learning um, and, and pursuing those gifts and um, part of our faith is to walk into an understanding of what does a supernatural, spiritual dimension of Jesus we've seen for throughout Mark, how does it apply to our lives, and how does a resurrection apply to our lives, and if we can believe that Jesus rose from the dead, then why wouldn't we believe that his power is still present here with us, and that we can Um, use it, and that it it could heal somebody, and um, you know, could generate all kinds of um, movements of the Spirit, so I I think it's healthy to be confronted with that, because that's what's in in the scriptures. My dad's been really into, um, you know the guy who wrote The Case for Christ? I forget his name. Strobel? Strobel, Lee Strobel. I guess he has one called Case for Miracles, so my dad's been really on about how like a lot of times like supernatural things will happen in places where there's not a lot of Christianity. And he was saying that in that book in the Middle East that they even have to have advertisements that are there because so many people have dreams about Jesus, they have dreams about a man in a white robe who's speaking to them. And so they have signs that just say if you've had this dream then come talk to us and then they end up like learning about jesus and getting converted and stuff and so anyway, i guess that book is all about making different cases for the miraculous well, it's
0: fascinating too i know we're getting into a little bit of a, a side discussion but i mean we, we talked about this a little bit uh when we talked about uh jesus uh casting out demons at the beginning of uh, of the book of mark and uh you know Our views of the supernatural, but we know that so when jesus went back to his hometown Very little miraculous stuff happened. Number one everybody knew jesus there And nobody really was into it and that can sound like a place we're (laughs) Used to uh, our culture everybody knows who jesus is, but he's been a little bit uh Uh, domesticated, yeah, declawed of any of his power, uh, because we have an almost cultural understanding rather than a supernatural, uh, real understanding of who he is. Uh, But these other places where they're not, they're not only have grown uh, too familiar, but also maybe the Western enlightenment rationalism hasn't choked every other kind of understanding of the world out, uh, that, uh, you know, miracle uh, and uh, mystery can still thrive. So it is interesting. And we know that Christianity is uh, growing in the world, but it's it's not in the West that it's growing. Mm -hmm.
1: Yeah. And I also think what's interesting about that for me and my whole journey through life has always been, well, isn't the whole thing a miracle? I mean, you know, was it, was it Einstein who kind of said either you look at the world as if everything is a miracle or nothing is? And I think there's something accurate about that. It's like, how, how are we even here able to have a conversation about the miraculous? The fact that, that we're here and that we've been created is just as much of a miracle, and it's all somehow working, um, even though there's imperfection, obviously, in the world, that there's a life force that energizes and animates everything. And so, like, when I tried to preach on it, I tried to connect it all through that lens because I think that in that way, it just feels much more logical. <laughs> um, but you have to get to that first place of saying, like, well, what does it mean? And we have two really interesting alternatives. You know, one is we're all dirt for worms. And the other is that this is all headed somewhere beautiful and resurrected and and new. And, and, and creation is the essence and the core of what resurrection means and recreation. So, um, so yeah. Like, why? Why are we so sophisticated that we can't admit that the whole thing is? I think one of the problems with the rational kind of movement is that it just it wants to explain all that away as totally meaningless and. Um, then there's kind of other funky thoughts that come out of that because people are searching for truth and things. Um, but
0: Yeah, it's amazing how other things get rationalized into existence, right? You know, you lose Jesus and then people say we're living in a computer simulation. <laughs> and, and you go, well, wait a minute, oh, you know, uh... it's, it's an abandoning, but it, it, it's, not, it's not really more rational. It's just a different choice. Uh, And it's a choice, and I think this is what I I felt like you were preaching on on Sunday and was probably the biggest takeaway that I had from the book of Mark, is it's a choice, just like you said with that Einstein quote, it's a choice to say yes to the kingdom and the movement of the kingdom and to what Jesus is offering. Because when I was looking at all of these examples of the people Jesus worked with, None of them did anything other than say yes to what Jesus could do for them. Yes to the offer of salvation. Will you cure my blindness? Will you take these demons away? Will you cure my sickness? They all said, and he said, do you think I can? They say yes, and then they get it. Mm -hmm. And that's what it's delivering. It's not more complicated than just saying yes to what Jesus is offering, people will make it more complicated. Mm-hmm. They'll make the formula, and they'll say yes to their formula, and at a certain point, they end up not saying yes mm-hmm. to the kingdom. Uh, and uh, that was my biggest. It was a it was a comforting thought for me mm-hmm. reading this book mm-hmm. that Jesus doesn't require much from us. Mm-hmm. He wants us to live by these ethics. He wants us to be good to each other. He wants to love us to love each other uh, and to love God. But he just wants us to say yes to this flow of the kingdom, which is originally, I think what you were talking about, what he said yes to through creation this entire time. so I think, that, I think that that Einstein quote is kind of a, another kind of short, concise way to say that. You know, mm-hmm. say yes to the miracle that's around us and to what God wants to do. Mm-hmm. So that was, that was one of my big takeaways from the whole thing.
1: And I think that's like, you know what's interesting about Einstein is it's like a contemplative thought. It's, it's when you go from the black and white to the third thing. And he even said something along the lines of you cannot solve a problem with the same mindset that created it or so, Like, you know what I mean? Like, it's like, you kind of have to go outside of the the mindset in order to understand it better and contemplate, like, what is this world we live in and what's really going on? Um, And to ask that deep of a question and to read the gospel stories, depiction of that, um, I think is is a way to think of of the world with new eyes, and to move in the world in a new way, um, and and that's been the whole goal is to just get us um, invited, you know, and and then we get to decide what we do with the invitation that we've been given um, to to all of it, and we. I I agree, we don't have to have it figured out. And in fact, the things we have figured out are some of our biggest obstacles to actually getting to where we need to be. And that's where the shedding of skin really comes in is when we do say yes to that and desire it, that we discover that there's all these things that, that have gotten in the way of just saying, Saying yes in that simple, that humble, kind of childlike way, so um, I you know I mean I, in that way, I think that's what's beautiful about the resurrection is we don't have to understand it fully in order to participate in it, right And God's going to do his work for anyone who just says, "I'm here, even though I don't get it, ready to be ready to be terrified if I need to be terrified. <laughs> Anything
0: else, Dave? I think that about wraps it up. All right. For me, at least. Well? Well, it's a goodbye for now. We, uh, the Bible study, loyal watchers and listeners, will be going on hiatus for, uh, for now. And uh, uh, we'll see when the Lord prompts its return. Uh, <laughs> We're going to
1: take a little break. A We're going to compile... Work on all Um, all of the things that we've done here. And so at some point in the future, we'll let you know about that.
0: Exactly. Yeah, As everybody knows, we've had different contributors. That's what we've been doing with both of our, our dads. So we will work towards making that into something presentable.
1: And we want to thank everybody, all of our loyal fans and actually just people that are learning the Bible, (laughs) more importantly, that uh, have joined us on this journey. Thank you so much. And let me, let's, I I will pray for us as we end. Dear God, I thank you for um, being here in our midst, Lord. We thank you that um, you are the good news um, and that um, you can heal, that you can change, and so we pray that you would do those things in us, um, that even now, Lord, that you would just minister to us and uh, connect us to the vine, Lord, so that we can uh, participate in the life that you have desired for us to live, that we can practice what we have learned through the Bible, Lord, and Um, through the gospel of Mark, that we would actually um, do what it says, and not just let this be head knowledge, but let it move into our hearts, let it move into our souls, um, and let it be uh, made manifest through your kingdom come here and in and through all of us, Lord, as we um, engage with your word and with your spirit. In your precious and holy name we pray, amen.
0: Amen. Goodbye, everybody.